Welcome to Two Spies. This is David and Mark. Very glad to get back to it. Uh, we're going to start tonight in 2-8. I say tonight like you're always listening to this at night, but either way, we're <laughs> yeah. doing it at night. Yeah, we record at night. So, you listen to it whenever you want to. <laughs> um, so we had come up to verse, uh, I believe, verse 9 in chapter 2, which is about the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. We've already touched on that and worked on that a little bit with trees back in uh, chapter one. So we're not going to spend a huge amount of time on it. I do want to go back to uh, 2.8. And in 2.8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. It, just something to notice there that the garden is in Eden. Yes, it, sometimes it is called a garden of Eden, but it's a garden in Eden like it's like Eden itself is a place. It, the garden itself is not just Eden. There's a place called Eden, and it's in the east. Um, it's referred to as both, but it suggests here, let's see, it's already a, a place. There is a place already called Eden. Eden, the area, may have been much larger, larger than just the garden. So looking at Eden, it means, uh, or excuse me, in we say Eden, it would be Aden. Aden is pleasure. It comes from a word meaning luxury or delight. And it, that comes from a word, uh, Adan, verb, which is to delight oneself. Being in the east, just looking at east for a second, east is Kadem. East means common, east, or excuse me, Kadem means the common word east. It also means front or that which is before or aforetime or antiquity. It's related to the beginning. So the beginning of each day. The sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. So the beginning of the day would be uh, the Kadem. Where if the, the Kadem is where the sun would rise. But uh, just being uh, attached to the word front or that which is before, it comes from the verb Kadam. Kadam means to meet or come in front of, confront or go before. So just points out that this is this place, this Garden of Eden is a meeting place. Of God, um, also it, this verb being used for to confront. At some point, this becomes a place of confrontation with God. Kind of a neat double meaning, and I see that throughout the Bible that a word will have a meaning that is being used in a particular text where it's being translated like X, but it also has this uh, Y or negative X meaning underlying it, and there seems to be a choice within the word within the verbiage. That man, if man chooses this way, they get this part of the verb. If they choose to act this way, God has to respond because of who he is. He responds back with this other flavor of the verb. Uh, in Genesis 2, 9, it's a retelling of tree creation. We talked one time already about uh, telling and retelling of things. So we have like in chapter one, we have a, uh, the creation of man and woman. And then in here in chapter two, we have the retelling of the creation of man and woman. In chapter one, we have the telling of plant creation here in chapter two, five through six, we have the retelling of plant creation because it says there was no bush of the field yet. And there was no small plant yet in the field. So it just gives you a retelling. Then the trees have already been created in chapter one, but here in chapter two, verse eight, or excuse me, verse nine, gives you a retelling of tree creation again. So let's see. Uh, we'll take a little bit of time and look at the names of the rivers that flow out of Eden. So starting in verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So just a picture first of a garden, if you don't want to picture that kind of property. And this river flows out and then... It says there it split. So it flows out, there it splits, it divides into four. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Let's, let's go ahead and read the whole thing and then come back and look at the individual names. Okay, that's fine. Uh, verse, uh, verse 12, And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. 
and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So just taking apart some of the, the names here. Pishon means to increase. It comes from push, to spring about, to scatter, to spread. So it has this concept. You can kind of picture it almost like a delta, like a river delta. Like if you look at the, a map, like in the back of your Bible, you look at the map of uh, the Nile, it spreads out into 100 million fingers. So that's kind of the idea here that the, the river is spreading out. The Pishon flowed around the land of Havilah. Havilah means circle. It's from Chul, which means to twist, to whirl, to dance, to writhe, to fear, to tremble, to travail, to be in anguish, to be pained. So you almost see uh, the Pishon and the Havilah uh, working together to give you this picture of more, instead of the Nile, probably more like the Amazon, you kind of picture it like this snake laid out across the land is twisting and writhing through the land. Uh, there is gold there. Look, look, I don't know if we you know. mind it. I'm just curious where, when it says where there's gold, that for some reason that's always jumped out at me when I read these verses. I've never really studied the rivers, um, but I am curious just your thought. I don't know if you have any thoughts, if there are any. Uh what you, I think what you're getting at is we know where the Tigris and Euphrates are. We don't know where the Pishon and the Gihon are. So maybe there's mm-hmm. maybe God knew what's going to happen, and, and he's going to change the land, and he's giving us directives or directions possibly about where these things might have been. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Just a, yeah. I could go with that, but also trying to keep in mind that Moses is writing this, and he's saying where gold is present so true, yeah there's sometimes we're like uh what is it it must be in kings either way it's zeb and oreb and these two guys died on the rock of zeb and the rock of oreb and it's like their mom and dad name them that and all of a sudden they ended up at a rock and they with their name one day and that's where they died no it's probably <laughs> from the perspective of the time of the writer saying this guy died here, and from now on, we're going to call this the Rock of Zeb because we killed Zeb here. Yeah. So I'm thinking from true. at this particular time, there's a study I've done recently in Ein Mishpat, which becomes Kadesh. And Moses names it Kadesh at one point in the Torah. Later on in the Torah, he names it uh, Kadesh Barnea. And you can look into the meaning of the word and the time that he changed it and see that he changed the name. And from then on, it was referred to as Kadesh Barnea because of some point in history, some event in Israel's history that happened. So from his point of writing it, at one point he's calling it Kadesh. And then when he's writing down and referring to that same place again, after this main event happened, he's now renamed it this other name, which carries some bit of history with the, with the new name. So I'm looking at this. Moses is writing this. We do know, and this is agreed on, agreed upon between uh, science world in geology and the biblical world in geology that there used to be a single continent, and that was split. Right. Yeah. I think this is something that's now hidden from us, possibly because the world is so changed from what it used to be that you're not going to go find the Pishon and the Gihon anyway now. I don't know that. I'm just that's all. That's my explanation that I think of it. So besides, uh, you could go with this though. Besides that, there is gold and bdellium. Bdellium is as a transliteration um, from, the, from the Hebrew. A transliteration. If you don't get into translations or or different languages, translation is uh, translating what a word is saying, like. Uh, uh, let me now that I'm draw a complete blank. <laughs> <laughs> Some word that we have used. Okay, well here's a translation. We just talked about it a second ago. Kadam means to meet. We are translating the meaning of kadam in one language into the meet the same meaning in our language, which means to meet. So we write it down. We've we've translated it. Bedelium is a transliteration, meaning we write the sound of it in our language, the way it sounded in that original language. So. We don't have any kind of meaning that we know of for sure. We think it is gum resin. 
gum resin being like uh, syrup that flows out of a tree. If you if you scratch the tree, uh, sap, pine sap, or maple syrup, it's the same thing. Those things would be something you would want, but they also would kind of carry a goldish tone. So maybe there's something going on here with, with mm-hmm. a suggestion of gold. Uh, gold is a I don't know if we should get into that or not. Gold's a, a royal metal, but yeah. Uh, bdellium gum resin comes from bdell, means to divide, to separate. So we see a, a constant idea going on here, and this is what I want to reiterate at the very end of the, of the name of these rivers too: spring about, scatter, spread out, dance, writhe, whirl. It's kind of a, a wild idea, but it's spreading out. It's going out in directions. Bdell divide separate so we'll keep carrying that through most of these things here um but other than the other than that speculative answer no i really don't really have an answer i do agree it's i just got to be here for some reason yeah in fact we could probably do a, a study of gold throughout the bible and find out that this right here let's let's say what is it associated with here it's associated with before sin we know it's a, a medal of a king or a medal of the king. Right, yeah. It's a medal of meeting with God since most of the inner pieces of furniture in the tent of meeting that Moses uh, had made were made of gold. Outer things were made of bronze, and some intermediary pieces were made of bronze and gold or silver, silver redemption. So uh, bronze or brass being judgment, it's outside. Silver's redemption is changing over into gold is holy or uh, godly. Well, so that's a good point because we've had conversations to where, um, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily doing uh, core old Testament theology, which I've, you know, we talked about where old Testament theology is really like forgetting, you know, the new Testament yeah, and seeing what the old Testament is revealing as time progresses. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, like you talked about gold, this is pre sin. Well, gold, doesn't have value as far as material as we think of gold, you know, you're rich or your yeah. wealth or you can buy things. So I'm just, you know, as Moses is writing this down, obviously he knows things ahead of time, but as far as the sequence goes or the order, um, I am curious why God wants to mention, but I mean, I like the thought of, you know, he's letting the Israelites know, Hey, this land is, you know, um, there's gold here. There's gold in the earth. <laughs> Um, but again, um, I don't know. Well, going back to what was the the word back here? Um, sorry. So, I mean, it could, you know, like you talk about royal and the kingship and like you talked about how um, in our last podcast, you know, the reflection, um, you know, what we see in heaven could reflect yeah. things we see in earth. Well, there's streets of gold in heaven. This could almost technically mean yeah. a street of gold in a sense. Well, also pointing to what we just said a second ago. I, I'm sorry, I've got lost, but with finding it, Kadem East, it goes back to a word which gives us an idea of a meeting place. And the Garden of Eden was a meeting place. If there's gold being mentioned here, it possibly is referring more to God, but meeting, the tent of meeting, like we just said, the, the inner pieces of things, the, the furniture yeah. inside. The uh, table of showbread, the menorah, the Ark of the Covenant, all that's, uh, if I remember right, it's all pure gold. Well, excuse me, it's not mixed with another metal. It is wood in the middle, layered gold. There's no other metal mentioned in those things. So it could be pointing to a meeting place with God kind of idea. Let's see. I guess also I'll throw this in here. Onyx uh, is a white stone. If we flip all the way to Revelation, we find in the, I think it's chapter two, in the letters to the seven churches, to the one who persists, he gets a white stone. So we've got the whole idea of a white stone being accepted and a black stone being a, a, a vote casted where you're not accepted. So if you're going to be going into a society, like a brotherhood of some kind, and they wanted to have a secret ballot, they may pass a bag around and cast in a white or black stone voting on this new guy who's going to come in. The black stone, your your blackballed is where we get our idiom from. But if you get all white stones, you would be brought in. You would be included in the group. And Jesus says in that letter, uh, you'll get a white stone with your name on it. 
So kind of an idea of, of inclusion and meeting God. So to go along with the springing about and the scattering and the spreading, moving to the next river, the Gahan. Gahan means bursting forth. It's from a verb, Giach, which means to burst forth. So real simple there. The Gahan flowed around the land of Kush, meaning black. Uh, I can't say I have a real meaning to put there. But uh, let's see, that does give you the idea of Kush is, I believe, likened to, it depends on uh, which translation you look at in Ezekiel 38, it will give you that Kush or Ethiopia is, is included there. Actually, if I want to see what the different, I'm going to look in Ezekiel 38 and compare uh, translations. Because that would be Ezekiel 38 and verse 5. Okay, so the, the Hebrew there is actually uh, Kush. And translation comparison brings up Kush, Kush. King James uses Ethiopia, New King James, Ethiopia, NLT, Ethiopia, NIV, Kush. Yeah, I was about to say there's like an interchangeable between Kush and Ethiopia. Yeah. That's one thing we'll, we'll get to it also that at some point, just because we'll be talking about places, but in different places in the Bible, you'll have the same exact uh, geographical place named differently because at some point the people changed the name. I mean, Iran is a, a fairly new name. It used to be Persia. So when we talk about Persia, biblically, that's the same people, the same place Iran is. Let's see. Next one was well, the... I just ahead. found this just kind of throwing it out there. Um, Isaiah 18. I want to read verse 1, 2, and 7. Uh, verse 1 says, Ah, the land of wearing wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush. Verse 2, which sends ambassadors by the sea and vessels of papyrus, papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide. In verse 7, um, at the time tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. I have a uh, ESV note right here also uh, in verse 1. All the land of warring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, the note says Nubia, or probably Nubia. I want to say Nubia is still a East African country. Go on. Yeah. All right. Next, uh, next one is the Tigris. And you'll see where the name comes from. In Hebrew, it's called the Chidakel. So, of course, we call it the Tigris. <laughs> Uh, I've done a little research on this before. I think it comes from, if I remember right, it comes from a Latin translation being the the uh, Latin Vulgate. I think that's right. But either way, it, it we get the name from that, not from the Chidakel. The Chidakel means rapid. It flows east of Asher or Assyria. Uh, Asher, but we translate Asher in the Hebrew to either Asher or Assyria, both in English translations that comes from a word meaning to step or a step, excuse me, it's a noun. A step is from the verb to go straight or to walk, to advance, to make progress, to be called blessed or to pronounce happy news. So kind of, that's kind of odd to me, but as I looked at it, I couldn't find, uh, because a lot of times the, the strongs will give you this list of things that is translated as, and you look down through there and it'll say, uh, it's translated as go straight uh, 52 times. It's translated as to advance 13 times. So you'll at some point you'll find to pronounce happy news. I did find a place in the Psalms, but I mean, it was just like one time that it was used to, to refer to that. Uh, but still with the, with the Hidekel, it still has an idea of going straight, advancing, progressing, which is what we've been looking at and see the rivers are showing. Right. 
the Euphrates uh, comes from, and it, it, you you can if you look look at it. Every Hebrew word is basically made of three letters, three consonants, and these here will be the parat, uparat, uparates. You can see the you can see the word change through the languages, the name change. But uh, parat is fruitfulness. It's from a a root basically meant the same, meaning to break forth or to be fruitful to increase, to spring about, to scatter, to spread. Excuse me, I'm going back over now. This is just going back over and recapping all the names' meanings to, to see what they're really showing. To increase, to spring about, to scatter, to spread, to divide, to separate, bursting forth, rapid, to go straight, to walk, to advance, to make progress, to be called blessed, to pronounce happy, to break forth, to be fruitful, and I'll recap all these just to say it doesn't seem like man was intended to stay in the garden. <laughs> just just from looking at all the, the names yeah. here of the rivers. And it doesn't really say either because man, we see this in a minute. Man gets to name the animals. Who's naming these rivers? <laughs> uh, I mean, who you think's naming the garden itself? Yeah. I would guess God. He's telling him, hey, this place is, is pleasurable. Right. And these rivers are named such and such. And Adam had to learn four or five of them and he knows where he's at now. So, <laughs> right. Uh, let's see. I read through verse 15 while ago. So kind of sweep it up. Um, read it again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We often hear, I thought we, we hear our own pastors say that all the time that, that work is not a curse. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it put he put him there the word that is translated into put is noah this is the same root that we get the name noah from it means to rest or to settle down to remain to deposit god's depositing them there to leave or to abandon i mean it's got different flavors of it but god took him and put him there and left him there but you can also see the idea of he took him there to give him a rest mm, you yeah. rest here stay here Work, abide. Abide is uh, to work, to serve, to labor, to till, like to till the ground. And this is the same word we get stuff, uh, names like uh, Abedmelech. I think he is one of the the servants who serves Hezekiah or Zedekiah, the one of the last kings. He's the one that I think rescues uh, Jeremiah out of the, the, uh, the well they threw him down into. Abedmelech. Abed mm -hmm. means the servant. Melech king. He's a servant of the king. Hmm. What's the last <clears throat> word here out of 2.15? Keep it. This is kind of interesting. Shamar. To keep, to guard, to have charge of, to take heed of. Pretty easy to see that he's got charge of it. He's supposed to keep it. He's supposed to take care of it or take heed of it, but to guard. Hmm. I'm just that's a different flavor of the word. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's Adam's job to guard it, because who's he guarding it from? Right. Except maybe some serpent or something. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. We haven't. We don't know what's beyond. <clears throat> Let's go on. Okay, like we talked about, we're going to kind of skip verse 16 and 17 because we've kind of dealt with the whole tree thing in our last podcast. Oh, wait, wait, wait! I don't want to just skip it flat out. There's something neat that I think we want to look at. Okay, go for it. <laughs> Dive right in. We'll just, we'll dive just, right in. Dive right in. We'll just keep what is uh, neat about it. Let's see. Lord God commanded the man, saying, "You shall surely, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden." I'll go ahead and read seventeen. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it of it, you shall surely die. In the uh, in the Hebrew, there for two sixteen, eat is actually akol tokel. It's two forms of akol, or akol, which is to eat. It, it, it's like we say uh, we say a word twice to mean it more, to add emphasis. Right. And this, we're not the only ones that do this. And Korean, uh, excuse me, uh, Hebrew is not the only one that does this. Uh, my wife in Korean, they do the same thing. They, they'll say a syllable or they'll say a word twice it simply adds emphasis. So he is saying, eat, eat. He's, he's doubling the word to add emphasis, meaning anything you want to eat here, 
eat it, eat it, enjoy it, have a good time, eat a lot. Except for this one over here. Hmm. And it's neat that he ends verse 17, mut tamut, or mot tamut, which, which means it's double meaning of mut, which is de uh, to die or death. So he's like, eat anything you want. Eat a lot of it, but don't eat this one over here because you will die, die. You will really die. Mm. It's just, I just saw that. I thought, huh, when I first saw the the eat twice, I thought, that's pretty neat. I wonder if that just adds emphasis. And then when I see the other one, there's like, oh, you will really die. Which kind of gives us like, well, what's what's death? And we think of death as death as a body. We know from our perspective, though, looking on this, that God is saying there's something beyond just your body dying that's going to happen to you. Yeah, You're going to die spiritually in this situation. So not not didn't want to bog us down, but didn't want to pass over that either. That's that's a good thought. I didn't even see that. <clears throat> uh, go to verse eighteen, which you know I think it's often overlooked. Um, but <clears throat> then the Lord God said, "It is not good for them that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him." Um, first of all, this is pre-sin, as we've talked about. So everything's perfect. There's no division between God and man. God and man are in perfect communion, perfect union with each other. And then God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Why would you be alone if God and man are in perfect communion? Um, <clears throat> so I have some different thoughts. Um, we'll kind of come back to verse 19 and 20. So I'm kind of skipping around uh, kind of hitting that verse just briefly hitting verse 21 through 25 um god caused the man to fall god caused a deep sleep to come on the man um took his ribs closed it up you know from the rib god made woman brought her to man he said she'll be called woman because she was taken from man um, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and become one flesh so here are my thoughts kind of dealing with verse 18 and verses 21 through 25. And we'll, like I said, we'll kind of come back. Um, the word good in Hebrew, tob, could also mean morally good. Um, should is a Hebrew word, haya, that can mean to come to pass. And alone, bod, uh, can mean separation or part. And helper can be interpreted as assistant. And fit can be translated um, that which is opposite. So I'm um, really, I think if you break down verse 18 through those definitions, it's, it's not morally good that man will be separated, which, you know, like, like I mentioned to come to pass, so it will happen. So it's not morally good that man will be separated. I will make him an assistant for him. So here's, here's three things that I see. And I want to get your thoughts on these three things. If you want me to stop at one, that's cool. A morally good doesn't really exist yet. There's no morals, technically. There's no sin. There's no um, barrier as far as man goes. Now, you know, I I think we believe or come to a consensus that Satan has fallen at some point. Um, so there's before some, this, yes, yeah, and so there's some kind of uh, morality going on that God obviously God knows. Um, but why would he, you know, one is why would he insert this to man? Um, and as we, like I said, as we see the word should, as it will come to pass, I think it's interesting because to me, it shows that God's foreknowledge is coming into play right here. He knows what's going to happen. He's preparing a helper um, that will assist him in the good and the bad. Yeah. What do you, do you have any thoughts on that before I, I will say there's no sin, yeah, I agree, but there is one rule. Well, it just true. now came the verse before that. Well, that's true, so. that's the morally good, yeah. Yeah. So here's your here's the choice, Adam, and I want you to choose to be morally good. That's a good thought. But uh my like you say though, he he foresees what's gonna happen. Yeah. My second part is um, you know, God's grace and love is shown here by giving us a helper that when we are alone or will be apart from him, uh, we'll have someone in the meantime. Um, I think he's just kind of showing his grace here. Um, and then the third part, which I, I shared with you earlier is uh, a little bit far fetched mate, perhaps. Um, but I wrote down that the helper was birthed out of man. The woman was birthed out of man, came from man. So I think this is also a, uh, a foretelling, so to speak, or a glimpse into, <laughs> 
um, the church being birthed out of Christ with the Holy Spirit, obviously. Um, we're helpers of Christ. Um, obviously, we don't take Christ's um, headship or his authority, but he doesn't need our help, but he wants our help. He desires our help. He sends us out to proclaim yeah. about him. And then, you know, in the second coming, he leaves his father and comes to be reunited with the church's bride. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I want to, uh, I like that. And I do think it's, it's dead on as far as picture type. I'm just going to read this and you'll recognize it and you'll know what it's usually used for. But when we get to the very end, Paul tells us what he thinks it is. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So we're, of course, talking out of Ephesians 5 here. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, by, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their, their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of the body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we see Paul teaching here husbands and wives in this letter to Ephesus, and he goes back and forth with how a man should treat his wife and how a wife should treat her husband. And he brings it all down in quotes or requotes uh, back here at Genesis 2.24. And then he says, uh, this is Ephesians 5.32, after all this explanation about marriage, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Hmm. He nails it down. It's more like marriage is secondary only to show us what God and man relationship is supposed to be. Man as a whole is supposed to be like a wife to God. Hmm, that's interesting. And the Old Testament makes it real plain that God considers Israel a wife. Right. So Israel is God's wife, and the church is the son of God's bride to be, not betrothed yet. But it, no matter if it's good, good or bad connotation, because he does divorce or give a certificate of divorce to Israel at some point because of their whoring around. Right. But they are seen as a wife, and he doesn't just break covenant with them. He has to break covenant with them through a divorce. So it's real superficial to God that he sees man in this situation. But Paul is sitting here saying, marriage is just to show us what God and man are supposed to be like. It's, uh, it's, here's another one of those things, though, that I think is, is a double-sided uh, phrase, that there is a possibility of two pathways to fork out of this word here. Um, he gives him a, he wants to make him a helper, an ezed. Uh, the Lord wanted to make for the man a, and excuse me, and is it a connecto? A connecto, the, the middle there is neged. It means to be in front of or to be opposite of or to be parallel to. And we look down here towards the, towards the end of this right here. Well, excuse me, we, should, we would be jumping into chapter three there. The woman does stand opposite him. She does stand parallel with him. She does stand in front of him in a way. Yeah. And uh, the husband loves his wife. He goes in with her. I think there's a there's extra flavor in this too. Uh, looking at, I had told Mark before we recorded, I saw some notes of my own today that I wrote in my own Bible sometime back that surprised me when I, when I looked them back up to see what my cross-references went to. So uh, to jump into that, because I think it kind of adds to this, in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Who in this picture right here we're looking at already has parents? Nobody. Adam wasn't born. Eve wasn't born. Hmm. They don't have a mother and father. Except for, I looked at my note right here, and it says Luke 3.38. If you go to Luke 3.23, it says, uh, Jesus, 
when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. And then it gives you his genealogy. The son of Haley, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, and it goes on and on until it gets down to son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, Boaz, gets on to Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, keeps on going back, goes to Eber, goes to Shem, Noah, goes all the way down, gets to son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, the son of God. Luke calls Adam a son of God or the son of God. Greek's pretty specific. I hadn't looked it up to, to make sure, but it most likely has a the there. Adam is the son of God. According to Luke 3.38, we look back here at Genesis 2.24. Therefore, the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. If we look down at Genesis 3.6, Chapter 3, verse 6, so the woman said to the man, uh, excuse me, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a life to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave also, uh, excuse me, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. He left his father, God, and he clung to his wife in this, this whole scenario here. Giving the law, uh, giving the woman, establishing what marriage is going to be, that a man's going to leave. You notice it doesn't say a woman's going to leave her mother and father. It says the man's going to leave his mother and father. Mm-hmm. So it's pointing to him, and he, has, as far as we can say, parents. God is his parent, and he leaves God for his wife and clings to her and her decision to do this. That's kind of what I saw that I'm like, I can't, did I find that? <laughs> it's kind of odd to me. I got a few notes for verse six, but we'll get. I'll get to that when we get there. Yeah, I had to skip you know to the next no, chapter. I, I want to keep chapters and in, in verses all separated. You know, <laughs> well, it's hard to sometimes because they interpret themselves. Yeah. Okay, so uh, verse nineteen, or you good with eighteen? Yeah, yeah. Verse nineteen and twenty. I um, really. I looked at it as a com- combination. The only thing I really thought about yeah. was um, God giving man dominion or, or letting the man display that dominion he gave. And it also, I remember um, when I started learning graphics and video stuff, um, I was curious, you know, is, is creativity a spiritual gift? I know, you know, it's not tongues and prophecy and knowledge and wisdom and, and giving and mercy and, you know, all the, all the gifts that are listed. And I always was curious, like, I don't know if this is accurate, but this is what I personally believe. I don't believe um, what Paul lists in Romans and Corinthians as far as gifts. I don't think those are all the gifts. Not exhaustive. Right, no. And so I kind of believe creativity is a spiritual gift. And I think when I was learning graphics and things, and I came across this verse, for whatever reason, it like spoke volumes. I'm like, what, what, you know, what is in this verse? And it came to me, God allowed man to be creative with these names. It's like, name the animals, whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. And man came up with these crazy names. How? We don't know, but he just used the mind God gave him. So the only thing I wrote down was the dominion and the creativity that God gave man. I think it goes back to what we talked about, though. Uh, um, I don't know how many podcasts ago. <laughs> we talked about uh, man being made. Uh, man and animals are both being made by the same verb, the same material, and the same process. And the only difference was that man is made in the image, uh, responsibility, and authority of God. Right. He made us to be authoritative over this uh, material realm, and the animals are what is under us that he's given us to rule over and to name, etc., cetera, have, have our way with. Good or bad, we do. Let's see. Are you... You passed 20 to 21. Yeah. I mean, I kind of shared my thoughts earlier about verses 21 through 25, you know, um, dealing with, uh, the helper and everything, but any thoughts? I don't know how to explain why it's linked, but, uh, (laughs) in 21, just looking at flesh and bones for a second, a couple of different words here I thought were interesting because they, they grammatically, I think back up what some things you said anyway. Um, 
not necessarily flesh and bones, but just, we'll get to those in a second. Just the words from man and woman. Flesh is uh, basar. It comes from, and that's a noun. It comes from the verb basar. Just a, just a little change in the the a there, but it the verb means to bear news or to preach. To announce salvation as good news. That's some Strong's definitions. Different places where this verb, beside, is used to preach or proclaim good news. Uh, to me, that's, a, that's kind of a curious jump. That Because when, when I look at these words to, my, to myself when I'm studying, that there's a verb that in the Hebrew mind meant such and such, and they decided to apply that to something they saw and make it a noun form. How so? The question then is: How do you jump from bearing good news or preaching to the noun flesh? How does that how does that link or jump across? <laughs> a, lot, a lot of times, I do pretty decent in at least uh, conjuring up some idea why I think they might be related. I don't know why these are related at all. <laughs> so the next one kind of explains my point, though. Uh, bones is etzim, or bone is etzim, essence. Substance. It comes from atzam, to be vast or to be numerous. It's pretty obvious that we have was it two hundred six bones, unless unless somebody has an extra tailbone or something two hundred seven <laughs> or eight. We have two hundred something bones, so th- it is vast. It is numerous, and there's a there's a neat little place in uh, Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones. I, got, I remember Patrick t- uh, preaching about it one morning. And I just, I thought, oh, I wonder what bones is. And I look at it and it's numerous. And if you kind of go through the Valley of Dry Bones and you see this, this massive, numerous army that, that God stands up. Kind of a neat play on words there. Oh. It's him. So uh, let's see. The little phrase that Adam uses here is the etsamai. Etsamai. It means the bone of all my numerous bones. This woman right here, she is the bone of all my bones. Out of everything God could have chosen to take out, whatever he did with it, what it has become, it's the main one. So uh, she is going to be called woman. Woman is Isha. It's a feminine noun. Woman, wife, or female. It's also it's used for females of animals. Isha comes from Ish. Ish is man. Uh, ish is a contraction or a short form of Enosh, which we'll get to the name Enosh in chapter five here soon. It simply means man. Um, they're they're now being as we're discussing this and going along. There's three different words for man. So Enosh, Ish, and Adam. A woman is not called anything like Adam. So if Isha is, the the ah on the end, the A-H, is the feminine part of the noun, basically. Man was taken from the Adamah. Adamah is a feminine noun. It means dirt. The woman's not called Adamah. The man was taken from the Adamah. What's what's left when you take Adam from the Adamah, just the ah on the end? The feminine part is what's left. Hmm. So God takes man out of the dirt, and what's left is a feminine quality. There's this other word for man, the ish, and God adds that feminine quality, that ach, back on the end of that, and ish becomes isha. Just kind of neat, because man was taken out of the dirt, not woman. Woman was taken out of man. She was not taken from dirt. Um, I don't know what you want to make. You can make something out of that, I guess. Right. <laughs> we we've already made what or we, I've already said what I think as far as man being uh, took it, taken out of the afar the the finest dust of the dirt he's taken out of a much finer piece of the ground a much more detailed huh. thing than the animals were they're just taken out of the adama huh. he's taken out of the afar adama she is taken and that kind of makes him like like the the whole chapter here is pointing out he is the peak of creation. He's made in man. He's made in God's image. He's made with God's authority over this material realm. He is the peak of creation. Then God takes out of him another piece and makes something, which I think is more of a gem. And I think most most normal men would agree with this. <laughs> I'll leave it like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
So uh, just to look at it, though, um, Adama means dirt. Adam was taken out of it. Adam also goes along with the, uh, it's similar to Edom. Edom or Edom is red or reddish, like red mud. Um, Enosh, which is the, Ish is the shortened form of Enosh, means a mortal man or a person, mankind collectively. Comes from Anash, means to be weak or to be frail, to be sick, to be incurable. You, you kind of get a, a real distinction here that he, let's see, one of the uh, Strong's definitions of Ish is human being, meaning in contrast with God. Whatever this thing is that God has made, is, it's similar to him, but it's not God. And in a way, you see in Enosh, the verb root Anash it is to be weak or to be frail. It is not invincible. Hmm. We are not invincible. We are sick. <laughs> well, well, you kind of hear the poetic uh, uh, crowd write something and say we're, or they, they they refer to we're dying from the moment we're born. Yeah, in a sense, we are. We're always dying. What? Yeah. So you know, so chapters one and two, I. I kind of look at it as, as a completed thought. It's all about creation. Obviously there's things that we've talked about that are specific and highlighting. Um, but I see chapters one and two, almost like a combining thought structure Yeah. as far as creation. Chapter three, I see it as one separate thought um, because it all deals with the temptation, all deals with the fall. Um, so I guess we'll just go ahead and get into chapter three. Um, so I just want, you know, so the first thing I kind of want to, I want to go ahead and get out there. Um, we might hit the serpent talk that we discussed before we went on podcast, but, um, you know, David's heard this story, but I had a, um, agnostic friend who, uh, (laughs) we, you know, we talked about the snake thing and, um, he, you know, we had a conversation. We've always had conversations about religion and God and and so forth. And they've always been pretty chill. And, um, he was frustrated for whatever reason on this specific day. And he said, Mark, I just really don't understand how you can believe in a talking snake. <laughs> and I had to think for a second. I'm like, well, I've never had that question approached to me. And, you know, it's kind of funny ever since I thought about that question and answered the question, I see it in these memes or I've seen, you know, all these thinkers, you know, make fun of, Hey, you believe in a talking snake. Um, my response as far as dealing with evolution goes, and we're not really going to go back to it, but I just want to talk about the snake just no, for a second. No, please. All right. <laughs> Sorry, DSF. Um, but, you know, in theory, evolution believes in talking snakes also. And what yeah. I mean is we evolve from non-living to living organisms, from a tadpole to a snake to a monkey. You know, I don't know exactly what order it went, but... Over billions they of don't years, either. well, yeah. <laughs> Over billions of years, we ended up a talking snake or a talking monkey or a talking tadpole. So um, we just believe this was an instant thing, and and um, atheism or naturalism believes it was just an evolution thing. So everyone believes in a talking snake. So there's that myth. There's that yeah. little rebuttal. Um, so now that's out of the way. We can kind of get back into scripture. <laughs> so. <clears throat> So do you want to share the thoughts that we kind of shared about the talking snake or? Uh, You go ahead and and start back on because you had the first thought that sprang the rest of the conversation and we'll just go from wherever that that goes to. One of the things I hear most often, which I'm not saying it's wrong. I'll say, I think there's a better interpretation and I might get hit like crazy with this, but that's okay. That's cool. You know, people say pride is the sin that got Satan kicked out and pride is the sin here that got and and in a sense I agree, but largely I disagree as far as sin. Pride is the sin that got man to or woman to be deceived or tempted. And I'll explain what I mean. Um let me go to the Greek. You know, Jesus talks about greed in Luke chapter 12, verses 15, um covetousness. And the word is pleonexia. Do what? Pleonexia. Yes. And if you break that down, it basically means to have more. 
Pleon means more. Greater and quantity, yeah. Exion, you know, comes from the root word echos, which means to have. So breaking down covetousness or greed simply means to have more. And that's when the Bible talks about be content with what you have. Yeah. Ex- so anything you want more. And, and I think that's why Jesus says, here's how you should pray. Um, God, take care of this day, our daily bread. Yeah. I'm um, not tomorrow's bread. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Again, um, God's talking about, you know, don't covet, don't want more. I've given you just enough. We, again, we'll talk about the manna raining down in Exodus and all that. God wants you to have just enough for this day. Yeah. Um, so to want more is greed. So instead of being content, I mean, Adam and Eve are in this full communion with God. Yeah. They're, they're, there's no sin. They got all this earth or Eden to take care of. They got all these animals. There's no strife. There's no pain. There, you know, there's nothing. But nothing they, bad. There's all kind of good. Right. But what? They want more. More. Yeah. The only thing left is that one tree. And they already know good. So really the only thing they're missing is to know evil. What is this evil? What is this? Is God, you know, withholding, you know, there's that desire to want more. So that's why I think greed is really, and I think that's why Jesus really emphasizes money and, and not serving two masters um, is really the greed. So I think greed is kind of the um, big sin here um, to want more. So uh, Satan shows him they can have more. And I think that's, you know, like, again, that's why Jesus talks about these things. Um, you know, like we already spoke about the trees in the last podcast. Um, so make sure to give that a listen in case you haven't. <laughs> um, so we don't want to repeat ourselves. But, um, you know, I think it's one thing that, you know, in verse five, the serpent reveals that they'll be like God knowing good and evil. They already know good, like I said, but evil, this, you know, it sounds interesting. They're not tempted to know good. They're tempted to know evil. So I think there's, there's a greed there. Okay, I want to get back for a second, though, because we did talk about, uh, this is what we talked about earlier. Before, before we wrote a podcast, we talked about the serpent and this, the fact that God actually curses the serpent. He does not curse Satan. And one thing I was adding to my notes today is to make sure it is said, this is not actually stated to be Satan. We don't know who this guy is. This certain serpent shows up and... As far as we can tell by literal wording that is present here in this on this little uh, part of the Bible by itself, this is not Satan. This is a serpent who is acting as a tempter. We do know from context of the rest of the Bible who this is, but I'm just saying presently the name Satan is not here, and the idea that this this particular serpent even has a na- an individual name that's not presented this way. So now the serpent, this is uh, Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So a neat thing or two, and this is just how some words like branch across, and you think, how is this related? The word for crafty is arum. It means shrewd, sly, to be subtle. It's kind of a, a tricky fella. It comes from Aram. Aram happens to be the same root word for the word Arum. So right here we have crafty Arum. The word Arum also comes from the verb Arum was in the last chapter. It means naked. I don't know how to tell you how that's related. Well, I'm curious because <laughs> like like we like David said, we we briefly talked about this before going live or recording was, um, you know, the thought that I thought of was uh, the serpent was more crafty. Uh, I This is, again, before sin affected the animals, before sin affected anything. Um, now, obviously, we interpret this as Satan entering the serpent. Um, but I kind of, I'm kind of curious if this verse is talking about the serpent being more crafty than the other beasts of the field as far as the animal itself, or is it referring to Satan being a part of the serpent? So it's saying, you know, Satan is technically crafty, not necessarily the, the animal itself. I don't know. I'm going to go back and say, and just recap from what we have looked at already in, in chapters one and two about things being created. 
They're created according to their kind. We talked about how God created heaven and earth, two separate places. Right. And that the animals on earth were created according to a kind. That means according to a pattern. Mm-hmm. So we discussed how most likely that these things down here are made like things up there, not like things up there made like things down here. So the, uh, and I refer back to the four living creatures of Ezekiel 1 and uh, Revelation 4, that the four living creatures have a face like an ox, like a lion, like a, like a, a cherub and a bull, excuse me, an eagle. So does the eagle on that beast look like eagles down here or do eagles down here look like that beast to represent it? And carrying that out, all the animals look like something that's there possibly. All the all the giraffes down here look like some angelic class up there that may look like long-necked giraffes. But when it comes down to it in the end, man is made in the image according to its kind. We are made to kind, according to the kind of God. We are his representative here. The other things are rep- other representatives from other classes of beings that God made in the heaven realm. In that way, the serpent could very easily represent the class of angels that that Satan was made as a kind of. And I think I have already said it. Uh, there's too many different um, tales all over the world throughout time about dragons. I don't consider their myths. I think they were real things and that they are most likely made after some kind, like an angelic class of dragons. I didn't come up with that myself. Uh, I did hear I had I've considered it, but Never really thought about it like I should think that <laughs> as much as <laughs> yeah. I heard a guy talking about it one time. And as I thought about it more, I thought that makes sense with everything else. I think Genesis is teaching me about according to kinds. Well, like we talked about, there's patterns. Yeah. God reveals these patterns. We can observe and, and understand yeah. that's how he works. They repeat over and over again. Right. So, um, and getting back to the serpent here, the serpent ends up with a curse so that he is crawling on his belly. If that's part of the curse, then what was he before he was cursed? He was not crawling on his belly. So what we see when we see pictures of dragons with legs, then most likely their dragons had legs. Yeah. If he is a dragon class like Revelation, like John sees in Revelation twelve, then he probably had legs. The serpent, though, now talking about animals per se themselves, are Certain kinds of animals smarter than other ones? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, can a dolphin understand more than a frog? Does a dog understand more than a chipmunk? So, yes, there are a different uh, intellectual abilities or mental abilities of animals. Right. That's why some can be pets. Yeah. And some just are their instincts kick over. And yeah. some are just so learners. We, we call them wild. And right. They can't be pets. But uh, as far as the serpent here, is the serpent itself actually crafty? I would say, yeah. Well, that's what I was curious. That's what I was thinking because of, you know, the very first part of that verse. It's talking about the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. So he's obviously referring to other animals or beasts on the earth. Um, yeah. I, th- I think the falling part where he says he said to the woman, I think Satan chose the serpent because the serpent was very crafty. Mm-hmm. If that makes uh, sense. It just came to mind. Jesus uh, says in Matthew ten sixteen, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Yeah. So Jesus is kind of backing up and say, well, out of all the traits that a serpent has, they're wise. Out of all the traits that the dove has, doves are innocent. Hmm. So he's kind of backing up and saying, yeah, some animals are crafty and sneaky. Some are sweet. We call them puppies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, if you're angry, go go sit in a room full of puppies. <laughs> you'll, you'll calm right out. That, that used to be a real, uh, I mean, when I had dogs, that was a real therapeutic thing to come home from anything, any kind of day, even a good day at work was a better day after you came home and go sit in the dog fence with your dogs for a little while and hang out with them. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had four dogs and you know, there were, sometimes there were pains, but I mean, they would just sit wide their tail and look at you and smile. And just, there's something about that dog. That's 
Yeah. You know, it's like, oh man, I like this guy. And you know, they're a part of the family really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I don't want to pass over. Let's see. Serpent. Nachash comes from a verb meaning to practice divination. Kind of neat to, uh, consider what he's related to the name of the serpent being, or the name of what the serpent is. Yeah. To practice divination. The serpent misquotes God's word. Then the woman misquotes God's word. <laughs> and then after that, we all had to put clothes on and get jobs and pay taxes. <laughs> yeah. Well, <I'm- laughs> Everything was perfect before then. Make sure you pay your taxes before April 15th. Yeah. Make, <laughs> make sure you learn how to quote God's word right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, one thing that just, it's not a big deal. I just think it's weird. It's strange. Apparently, the woman's not really surprised that she's talking to an animal. Well, she's obviously thinking evolution has happened here, <laughs> and this snake can talk, and I'm just going to have a conversation with him. <laughs> I mean, that to me, that's just weird. Like, but apparently, there there was nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, there was, it's almost like a. Uh, have you read the beginning of Narnia? I have not. I've never, uh, I've never read the book series. The magician's uncle is a very beginning. And I forget the, the the kid's name. It's not Edward. I want to say Edward, but it's not Edward. Cause that's one of the, the kids later on generations, but the kid's uh, uncle is a magician. Supposedly he is a descendant. His grandmother was one of the last actual half blood fairies in the British Isles. And she had this magic dust in a box well, he gets it out and figures out a way to make rings out of it. He makes a, a green ring and a yellow ring. And the little boy and his neighbor, little girl, they get kind of uh, caught by this uncle. And they figure out and up in his attic study, which is a kind of a secret built place that he's made nobody knows about. They get caught by him and kind of trapped. And they, he forces them to do experiments because he's afraid. Well, if you touch the green ring, you go into this in-between world. And they describe it as, as far as you can see, it's just like a dark wood. It's pleasant. It's not well lit. It's not super scary, but it's not super uh, friendly. But there are small, like he's almost described like a five to six foot circumference pool everywhere. You can go stand in the pool with touching the green ring, you won't go anywhere. If you put the green ring in your pocket and take the yellow ring out, when you're touching the yellow ring substance, you'll sink into the pool and you're going into a world or a universe. This this wood is the wood in between. And wherever you go, what ends up they come in and out of our world a time or two. The uncle chases them into the, the in-between. And when he chases them into the in-between, they end up in this uh, one world where uh, there is... Nothing left, nobody left. There was an old civilization. There's buildings everywhere where obviously something has happened there, but no one's left alive. They walk into this hall where these statues are everywhere. They ring this bell and it wakes up this evil queen who becomes the white queen in the later series. They are running from her and they run and they run. They put their, like they reach in their pocket and touch the green ring. And the queen somehow catches up with them, touches them as they're disappearing. And she goes into the wood also. As she goes into the wood, um, they run from her there. They jump into another pool, touch the yellow rings, and they end up in this black emptiness. And suddenly, what C.S. Lewis describes then is creation happens. So they're going into this one universe that is just now being born. Hmm. Point of all this is they go into this place and the animals can talk. It's very natural and normal there that the animals can talk. Them being kids... They're not surprised at all. They're fine with it. They just talk back to the animals. <laughs> so I forget everything that happens, uh, but there is some form of uh, Lewis writes in some picture type or whatever of uh, some parallel symbolism that sin enters through the white queen, if I remember right, the white witch. Um, when sin enters there, there is some kind of brokenness to the everything, to the law that exists there. And... Aslan shows up, he chooses these certain animals to still be able to talk. They kind of carry the torch, so to speak. And the rest of the animals become, quote-unquote, dumb or mute. They're not able to speak. 
So through the rest of the time of Narnia, what you see in those books is the animals that can talk. They're, I think they're all originals and they're still alive through the time. Mm. But sin entered that world when it was just brand new. It's interesting. I, I need to go back and read some of that, but who has the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you for tuning in to the Two Spies podcast. We look forward to being with you next week as we tackle the rest of Genesis chapter 2 and look at Genesis chapter 3. 